Good afternoon, I'm Brent Holland. Welcome to the show. This afternoon, Northern Armageddon. Dr. Peter McLeod joins us to discuss his seminal book, The Battle of the Plains of Abraham, Eight Minutes of Gunfire That Shaped a Continent. There are many things that I learned by reading this book. For example, the First Nations folks that were here, they played a hugely important role in the battle. The First Peoples and several hundred Canadian militia occupied the north and south flanks of the battlefield, fired into the British line, and they forced them to deploy three battalions of regulars to hold them off. And these are three battalions who would otherwise have been available to attack the French battle line. So really what the French did uh, with these guys is take native warriors and Canadian militia who wouldn't be that much use in a stand-up fight between regulars and put them on the flanks, and this causes the British to take regulars who they desperately needed on the battle line off to either side. When I'm taking people through a tour of the museum and showing them our plant Abraham model, I tell them that if the French had won, I would have explained this as one of the most important reasons that the first people and the militia tie down so many British troops. They haven't got enough to attack, to defeat the French. Although, in the event, they did. This afternoon, it's Northern Armageddon. Our guest, Dr. Peter McLeod. Right now on Brent Holland. Folks, we're speaking today with Dr. Peter McLeod. His book, The Battle of the Plains of Abraham, Northern Armageddon, Eight Minutes of Gunfire That Shaped a Continent. Canada has many seminal moments, actually, in its history, but perhaps none that has lit so many passions as that of the Battle of the Plains of Abraham. Maybe we can start off, then, with perhaps the political ramifications of the outcome, we all know that Wolf defeated Montcalm, and Canada has never been the same. I hail originally from Montreal. I've only been in Sudbury for two years. And having lived through several referendums and several marches, Le Québec au Québécois, and having eggs thrown at me for standing up for civil rights, it has been quite an explosive run for Canada ever since the Battle of the Plains of Abraham. What happened as a consequence of the Battle of the Plain of Abrahams? Well, very briefly, they moved from being part of a French empire in North America to being part of a British empire. And uh, the elite in, uh, in what is now Quebec changed from a French elite that looked to Paris to, to a British elite that looked to London. Was the hierarchy, you know, there was lots of talk in Quebec 
when I was there that um, the British basically came in and usurped everything that was in place, that uh, French Canadians were entrepreneurs and they stopped them from getting an education, stopped them from doing business. Is there truth to that? It would be better to say that they seized control of the upper echelon of society. But they left many of the, the French institutions intact, like the seigneurial system, like the Catholic Church. The Church is in particular hugely important to, to the people at that time. And in, in many ways, it grew in power and authority under the English because it was the most powerful Francophone institution left. Okay, let's go back to the battle. Here we are on the St. Lawrence River. There's a siege going on Quebec City. There's a siege going on, and the British are losing. They spent the whole summer trying to get up to the Quebec promontory so they can attack Quebec. Everything they try, it fails. By on September 12th, the French are feeling very, very confident. As far as they're concerned, they pretty much won the campaign. They're just waiting for the British to bail away. Wolf comes up with the idea uh, of landing at the Anse Foulon, which has uh, both strong and weak points to it. It lands the British very close to the French, puts them right up against Quebec on the one hand, but on the other, they have to get up a cliff that's about uh, 50 meters high, which is very difficult, very dangerous, and uh, if there's a, lar- if a large force, French force comes along, they could be in serious trouble. They wanted to move cannons and ammunition and all kinds of material up this embankment? That's right. Now, it was a road from the Anvil Foulon up to the top of the cliff. Histories often give the impression that either Wolf and his entire army climbed straight up the cliffside, or they find this tiny, winding little goat path. In reality, there is a very good roadway for the time. It is a decent surface road, good enough that even though it's been raining for four weeks, the British can haul cannon up the slope on the morning, up the road, on the morning of 13 September, and begin hauling up heavy artillery, 24 and 32 pounders in the afternoon. What was the geographical and military importance of taking Quebec City? Why not just bypass it and let it be? Really, because you can't. Whoever controls Quebec controls Canada. You get the best example of this during the American Revolution. Mm-hmm. when American rebels come up and capture all of the St. Lawrence Valley except for Quebec City. But that isn't enough because that's the center of British power, just as it was the center of French power, because this is where Canada connects to Europe. It's the only Atlantic seaport. This is where the supplies and the reinforcements arrive from first France and later on Britain. So if you take Quebec, the rest of Canada is going to fall inevitably, within a year or so. As long as you hold it, there's still a chance you can bring over a new army, more artillery, more supplies, and take back the rest of the colony. Again, the way the British did in 1776. You're listening to The Brent Holland Show. For more information on today's guests, as well as free podcasts and downloads, please go to the www.brenthollandshow.com website www.brenthollandshow.com What year is this taking place? 1759. So the Seven Years' War in North America begins unofficially and 
1754 with the first clash between the French and the British in the Ohio Valley. Uh, they declare war, finally, in 1756. And then three years later, the British are, are at, uh, at Quebec trying to get in. What's going on globally in the world between France and Britain at the time? Why is North America so pivotal and so important for them? Well, there are really two wars going on. There's one war in Europe, fought really over parts of Germany, mm-hmm. and then there's a global war between France and Britain, and later Spain, fought over colonies. Who is going to control really global commerce? And that, because of that, the, the war in Canada is hugely, hugely important to us. But from a global perspective, it's one more colonial struggle in a fight that goes all the way from uh, Lake Ontario to the Philippines. That's interesting to put it in a global perspective, and I think that's important. Folks, if you're just joining us, we are speaking with Dr. Peter McLeod. Dr. Peter McLeod, of course, has written a book called Northern Armageddon, and it deals with the Battle of the Plains of Abraham. And what's unique about his book is he takes you right through the battle, and he's written it so well and documented it so well, you feel like you're actually on the battlefield. Uh, no word of a lie. It is uh, quite revealing, and it's an important seminal event that took place in Canada and has shaped our country. Let's talk about French Canadians at the time. Here you've got these colonial powers battling it out on your own homeland. Were they kind of like, leave me alone and just let me be a farmer? Did they try and stay out of it? As far as they're concerned, they're as French as someone from Paris. Uh, one, of the, one of the ways you can see this is in the, the folk songs they sang during the war. And all of them celebrate their own identity as, as French, their loyalty to the king, and their ability to stomp the British any time they met them. A very confident, very loyalist. Later on, uh, after the, the capture of Quebec, a resistance movement emerges in the occupied area. And more than one British officer says, a French man who writes it down, that they've never seen a people who are as loyal to their king as the Canadians. Is that right? You see, I had the opposite impression. I thought it was kind of the two colonial powers battling it out amongst themselves, and the French Canadians that were here wouldn't be too interested. This would become their home. But I didn't realize the ties were that strong. Now, you mentioned folk songs as a source. I think that's absolutely brilliant. And that's the first time I've heard of folk songs being used as a source. What other sources did you derive from to get your information? Well, I think my best book of two really, really good ones. The first one was was very short. It was a newspaper account of the battle in um, a British paper. And it talks about some British sailors who ended up on the battlefield because they had dragged the six-pounder cannons. And after they dragged the cannons up, the soldiers wanted them to go, go get off the battlefield, get back to the ship. And uh, instead, they refused. They said they'd rather stay and fight. And so you get James Wolfe coming up to the sailors and saying, will you please just go? Thanks very much. We don't need you anymore. And they reply to this, something that's like, if it please your honor, we would like to stay and see fair play between the British and the French. And they pick it. They have, some of them have cutlasses. Some of them pick up six. Some of them have nothing. They actually force their way into the British battle line and take part in the battle. And for me to find this is just amazing. And I had always thought, of the British as a collection of human robots who basically did exactly as they were told with everything 
very well organized and neat line. The idea of a gang of sailors shoving their way into line, shoving their red coats out of the way, ignoring Wolf was, was fantastic. And it gives you a real insight into the human side of the battle and just how random and chaotic these things can be. Folks, we're speaking with Dr. Peter McLeod. Dr. Peter McLeod is the pre-Confederation historian at the Canadian War Museum in Ottawa, and he's a graduate of the University of Toronto, University of Saskatchewan, and University of Ottawa, where he received his PhD in history 1991. The book, of course, is Northern Armageddon. Very easy way to get it. You can get it at any chapters Indigo right across the country, or just go to the www.brentholandshow.com, www com. Click on the book cover. That'll take you right to Chapters Indigo where you can get it. Let's talk about the two adversaries, Montcalm and Wolf, and their differences perhaps in strategy and also their commonalities. I would say the most important thing they both have in common is that they're veteran soldiers and amateur generals. So for James Wolf, this is his first campaign. Sorry, his first independent campaign. For this, He's been a brilliant regimental soldier, regimental officer. Uh, he's very good at, at, at training troops. He's done very well in battle. He, as a brigadier, he performs superbly at the siege of Louisbourg. But there, he's a dashing young officer who runs around the battlefield while his commanding officer holds the responsibility. This time, in Quebec, at Quebec, he's in command. He's responsible for everything. And I think it weighs very heavily on him, especially as the, the summer goes on. And he keeps trying one scheme after another, and, and none of them work. Now, uh, Montcalm is in a slightly different situation. He's older than Wolf. He's been in he's been in, in the military longer. He's been in command of the French regulars in Canada since uh, 1756. But up until 1759, he was just the guy in the field doing what the governor general, Pierre de Grigaud-Devoy, tells him to do. He's usually not very happy about it, but he, he has to obey. And so again, this is his first time when he's on his own. And up until 1759, he's always had a crowd of strong senior officers around him, and they often gently guide him in the right direction. But in, on the plains of Abraham, they're all off guarding other frontiers. He's basically on his own. There's no one around who he respects enough to listen to. When he tells people he decided to abandon the strong position and charge downhill against the British, two or three of his junior officers sort of say quietly, you know, sir, maybe that's not the best idea. And too, too, too respectful of him to be really forceful and come straight out and say, no, we should stay here. Charging down the hill is a really, really bad idea. Let's wait here. Let them come to us. The way you beat the British in Catillon in 1758 and Montmorency in 1759. You're listening to The Brent Holland Show. For more information on today's guests as well as free podcasts and downloads, please go to the www.brenthollandshow.com website. www.brenthollandshow.com The First Nations folks that were here, they played a hugely important role in the battle. The First Peoples and several hundred Canadian militia occupied the north and south flanks of the battlefield, fired into the British line. And they forced them to deploy three battalions of regulars to hold them off. And these are three battalions who would otherwise have been available 
to attack the French battle line. So really what the French did uh, with these guys is take native warriors and Indian militia who wouldn't be that much use in a stand-up fight between regulars and put them on the flanks, and this causes the British to take regulars who they desperately needed on the battle line off to either side. When I'm taking people to a tour of the museum and showing them our Prince Abraham model, I tell them that um, if the French had won, I would have explained this as one of the most important reasons that the first people and the militia tie down so many British troops, they haven't got enough to attack, to defeat the French. Although, in the event, they did. Was this type of guerrilla fighting, and I'll call it that for lack of a better term perhaps, unique? And was that the first time it was introduced to the British, or were they aware of guerrilla fighting before that? Well, it was very common in Europe at the time. If you think of, say, Scottish Highlanders, if you think uh, of some of the nations of the Balkans, they were all into irregular warfare, guerrilla warfare. Dealing with guerrillas, but something was generally understood. The British first encountered it in North America in, on a large scale in uh, 1755 in the Ohio Valley when uh, General Braddock and his army were attacked by a mostly native army uh, supported by 200 French and uh, almost wiped out and forced to retreat in panic. So, so after that, there was no question that uh, natives could, native warriors could be extremely formidable opponents of regular troops under the right conditions. What the plans of Abraham is how they were able to be so effective against uh, Europe, Europe, European soldiers, regulars fighting a European-style battle in the open. Were the first peoples, were they Iroquois or were they Huron? Uh, both. Really, ah. they came all the way from some Micmacs uh, from Acadia right out to Cree's north of Lake Superior. The French are part of a massive alliance system that extends across what is now Canada, really up to past Lake Superior, and then right down the Mississippi Valley to New Orleans. And really, they, they got about 1,200 warriors from the St. Lawrence Valley and from the Great Lakes region who came to Quebec. came to Quebec to not just to fight for the British, or no, sorry, not just to fight for the French, but either because they lived there and they're defending their own homes, or they've come there to help the French, but also to help the Iroquois and the Hurons and Algonquins who live there. And we know this because there have been a couple of conferences where there are records of warriors from the West saying basically to Iroquois, no, we're here to help you guys. Folks, if you're just joining us, we are speaking with Dr. Peter McLeod. He's written a very, very interesting book and quite revealing. I have learned a lot from this book. Northern Armageddon, the Seminole Battle of the Plains of Abraham, can be got at Chapters Indigo right across the country, or an easy way to get it, of course, as always, is just go to the www.brenthollandshow.com website, click on the book cover, take your rate to Chapters Indigo online, you can order it, and it should be there within 48, 72 hours. Important reading as a Canadian with a question. I want to talk a little bit more about the two colonial powers. Was there any intent on either power to allow self-government at any point? I mean, here you've got the French Canadians with a strong First Nation alliance. Was that sending off any, not red flags, but any signals to each colonial power to say that, hmm, maybe these folks are ready for self-government. Now, we all know what happened later on with the American Revolution just a few years later, but I, I was wondering about the Canadian situation. So maybe we start with the British, because they're the easiest to dispose of. They, the British colonies already had limited self-government. Uh, they had their own colonial assemblies. People, uh, assemblies strong enough that they could refuse, if they wanted to, to 
to uh, provide troops and money to fight in the Seven Years' War. And some of them were strong enough they could feel their own armies and their own fleets, like the New Englanders who captured uh, Louisburg in 1745. And many observers, uh, colonial and European, were aware that they could become independent immediately, and the only thing holding them back was that they were afraid of the French in Canada. As far as the, the French are concerned, there was never any question of self-government and many, and never any real desire for it. Uh, there are loyal French subjects. They come from a, uh, absolute, they come from a colony that's relatively poor and that depends on subsidies from France to keep going. So the kinds of people that ended up leading the American Revolution in the, in the British colonies are people who are looking for promotions and subsidies and grants and pensions from Paris. So the idea of becoming independent never enters their mind. What was the allure for folks to come from both France and Britain to come and settle in the New World? It varies immensely. In basically the United, what was not was now the United States, the 13 colonies, was uh, at the time a wealthy and getting wealthier. It was a place where you could make money. It was a place where if you were you were a farmer, you could own your own farm, own your own farm, own your own land, become independent. At the same time, it attracted uh, a great many merchants. Uh, British merchants would come over, expecting to make a great deal of money, uh, settle there, uh, settle in North America, get married, uh, form local attachments. Uh, Canada is a little different. Most of the settled, most of the settlers come there in the 17th century, and uh, excuse me. Canada is never that popular as a destination for immigrants because, well, as Voltaire said, uh, a few acres of snow. <laughs> well, and based on their experience of the, uh, like the knowledge of the 17th century, it's a few acres of snow surrounded by Iroquois. Mm. Now, of course, you actually live there, you know that many Iroquois have settled in the Montreal area at places like Ganawage, and they're your best friends. The Iroquois in uh, now New York are another power you can negotiate with. But in France, there is this fear. Canada is a dangerous place and not that lucrative. You're better off going to the West Indies, French West Indies, which is a hugely profitable place. That's really interesting. This is a, a whole different take on Canadian history than I was taught, certainly, in my heyday right. when I was in school. And it makes a lot more sense, actually. It just wasn't as attractive a place as we would like to think about it. Again, in our... Patriotic history, it's very hard to say, well, it's very hard to say, Canada wasn't that much of a draw. We look at, and we, we look, we, when we look back, we think of immigration, we're thinking, we think more of the late 19th century. People flooding into the American West. Earlier on, people flooding into Canada, to, uh, to, uh, to, to, to Canada. We don't think that, well, loyalists came here because they had no choice. They had nowhere else to go whether they were from the Six Nations or other native groups or uh, with Europeans. We, we like to think of Canada as being the nice, safe, prosperous place that it is today. You see, Peter, I was taught that the allure of Canada was to get away from the caste system that was heavily in place, both in Britain and in France, primarily in France. And this is why people chose to come to Canada, because they would have a little bit more freedom. They could even own a horse, for example, even though they were working on a farm, whereas most of those luxuries would be out of reach in France. Well, they did live 
better lives. French farmers did live better lives in Canada than they did in Europe. It was a better place to be. It was healthier, but people in France didn't necessarily know this. Okay, it was like a little secret. And there's still a hierarchy. There are still the habitants who are sensitive to work the land, the seniors who control it, and then the, the government officials that actually run the place. But that was a class that they were very comfortable with. There was no kind of pre-revolutionary fervor in that let's, um, let's set up a guillotine in downtown Montreal and mm. uh, the Bourdoy family. You're listening to The Brent Holland Show. For more information on today's guests as well as free podcasts and downloads, please go to the www.brenthollandshow.com website. www.brenthollandshow.com Let's go back into the battle again. Was there any peace offering extended from Wolfe to Montcalm during the siege? Did he say, okay, listen, let's forget about the battle. Let's just make peace here. Obviously, he would dictate terms. Was there anything of that nature extended to him? Absolutely not. They never made a formal, formal summons for surrender. Huh. Wolfe was there for, with one purpose and one purpose only, which was to either take Canada or leave it in ruins. You go, you, there would have been a summons to surrender if he had lived at the stage of the city. They would, what would then usually start off by sending a letter into the, to the governor and saying, basically, uh, please surrender. And of course, there were sort of rules to war at the time, and the governor would wait until the attackers had, had battered a hole in the wall big enough for soldiers to march through. And at that point, we generally agree the siege is over. It's better to stop it now rather than letting your enemy attack and go berserk once they, once they get inside. Was Montcalm well fortified inside of Quebec? I don't know, folks, for those of you that have never been to Quebec City, it's a huge hill to get up. Uh, it's massive. And at the top of the hill, of course, you have this, imagine a castle wall, for lack of a better way of describing it over the radio. It's one heck of a fortification, and it's quite large. Were they well entrenched? Did they have food, water, and supplies? Very well. They... Um for Quebec was pretty much fortified already when the siege began. Uh, they fortified the Beauport, Beauport Shore, which is just south of Quebec, mm-hmm. which is the only place where you can land easily. They were short of food, and this is one reason the British were able to approach the Yonge uh, Foulon without getting caught, because they happened because of the tides. Uh, the French the food convoy, the French were expecting. And the, uh, the British tacking force sail, would have sailed at exactly the same time. Sorry, but that's confusing. The, when, the, when, the, when the French outpost above Quebec saw Wolf's flotilla heading for the Ile de Foulon, they thought it was a French convoy given warned to us to expect. They hadn't realized it had been cancelled, and because the both sides would ride the tides up and down the St. Lawrence River, because the British were on, on the right tide, they appeared at exactly the same time that a French provision convoy would have appeared. So because of this, they were able to land, approach and land the Ile de Foulon very easily. You're listening to The Brent Holland Show. For more information on today's guests, as well as free podcasts and downloads, please go to the www.brenthollandshow.com website, www.brenthollandshow.com.
Com. Coming up next on Brent Holland, we will continue our discussion with Dr. Peter McLeod on his book, Northern Armageddon and the Battle of the Plains of Abraham. When the French tires stop, they're about 20 or 30 meters away from the British, so they're really facing them face-to-face across the space inside of a large classroom. They trade back two or three volleys, something that I always stress because you often get the impression that the French come up, the British fire one big volley, and the French run away. Actually, as they stand there for 10 minutes, give or take, shooting back and forth in front of another, until finally the French can't take it anymore and the French line breaks and the regulars run. I say the regulars run because the Canadians don't. Canadians and the first people take up position on top of the Boutte de Neuve and keep on fighting. And while the French regulars escape, the Canadian first people force the British to retreat three times before they're finally outnumbered, pushed off the side of the field, down in the St. Charles Valley. That's quite a heroic last stand. It is, yeah. I want to thank Dr. Peter McLeod for joining us and telling us about this important book and his incredible research into one of the seminal moments of Canadian history. Thank you all for joining us. I'm Brent Holland. See you next time.